So, last time we were, many of us were together was on Tuesday night for the Christmas Eve service. And Jen was leading us. And on that night, too, as today, the passage from the Gospels was John chapter 1. And Jen quoted the now famous paraphrase by Eugene Peterson that reads, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I actually had a chance to be with um, Eugene Peterson about a decade ago. You might see us together on the screen there. Yeah, there we are. At his lake house in Montana, Flathead Lake, uh, I actually wore his swim trunks, which makes me feel even (laughs) somehow in my loins connected to him. Sorry, is that too, too graphic? For those of you who are visual, sorry. Through my relationship with Eugene, I call it a relationship, we just met one day and talked. This also puts me at one remove from Bono, as you know, because Bono and Eugene were good friends, also taken at the lake house there in Flathead Lake. I don't know if you know the story of how Eugene and Bono got together. It's a little funny. Eugene had come out with part of his translation of the Bible called The Message, you know, somewhat controversial but helpful to many. And Bono had somehow gotten a hold of it, and in a Rolling Stone interview, he quoted Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson at the time was teaching at Regent College in Vancouver, and his students came to Eugene and said, Mr. Peterson, you're not going to believe it, but Bono is quoting you in Rolling Stone magazine. Now, Eugene Peterson was so out of it, (laughs) pop culturally speaking, that when he tells a story, he still says Rolling Stones magazine. He didn't even know what Rolling Stone was, nor did he know who Bono was when his students came excitedly to tell him that Bono had quoted him in Rolling Stone magazine. Bono followed up with a phone call to Eugene Peterson, said, hello, Mr. Peterson, I don't know if you know me. I mean, I wish I could do a good Irish accent, but I don't know if you know me, but I'm Bono, and I'm part of a band called U2. And Mr. Peterson said, well, thank you. No, I I don't know about U2. And and Bono said, well, I'm just so blessed by your translation. I feel like I've been waiting all my life for something like this. And he said, we're playing a concert near you, I think it required a plane flight. Would you, I, I would love you to be our guest, um, and I would love to meet and sit down and talk with you. And Eugene said, thank you, but I don't really have the time. So in a later interview after Bono and Eugene had become friends, you can actually see this video on YouTube. I think he's at the Point Loma Nazarene Writers Conference, and the story comes up in an interview with Eugene Peterson, and the interviewer says, You know, Eugene, you may have been the only person in the world to say no to a request to meet Bono. I mean, how could you not go and meet Bono? I mean, for God's sake, it's Bono. And Eugene Peterson said, yeah, but for God's sake, at the time it was Isaiah (laughs) that he was translating, which also is timely because our passage today is Isaiah from the Old Testament. So all this to say, if my timing was better, it might have looked like this. So, um, 
Now, my middle name is Eugene, so you see the symmetry now. <laughs> the Eugene's on the side, and Bono in the middle, some version of the Trinity. <laughs> this almost looks like a Christmas card. I think I should have. By the way, other people went on that trip with me. Todd Hunter, if you know Peter Shambrook with me, I cut them out of the picture so I could have all the glory. And here's my cheesy segue. Glory, as it turns out, is the subject of John's prologue, for he tells us in John 1, John does, as I said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. But the, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John wants to draw our attention in the very first chapter to Jesus' glory. And he calls it the glory of grace and truth. Glory is kind of a religious term, right? There's the glory of Christmas. There's other ways we talk about glory in kind of this sacred way, but often a cliché. What exactly is glory? Um, well, a working definition may be that glory kind of breaks out, even in daily life, when we notice something attractive and desirable, and it evokes praise and approval. So glory just kind of breaks out whenever we see something attractive, desirable, good, and we praise it or express approval. So, I mean, this happens all day long, right? I mean, people are giving glory to things. I mean, it almost seems like the social media was designed as a glory machine because people are always saying, hey, you got to look at this. This is amazing. Something attractive, something desirable that evokes praise and approval. We do this all day long. Glory in little forms is breaking out all day long, which I think tells us that we were designed to experience glory. And I think that's why social media and the Internet has exploded in part because it's tapped into that part of us that wants to glory in something. And so we're always texting and sending messages and sending pictures. Like, Look at this. This is amazing. It's part of us. Wants to be part of glory breaking out. And I'm just saying that's a good thing. That's a normal thing. Things deserve a certain amount of glory, right? Uh, the message translation, Eugene Peterson, he deserves a certain amount of glory, something good and attractive and desirable and to express approval and praise. Bono was glorifying Eugene Peterson in an appropriate way. You too probably deserves a certain amount of glory. A well-made meal deserves a certain amount of glory. A medical breakthrough, right, deserves a certain amount of glory. Anything that is, that, is, that is good and beautiful, however our standards of beauty may sometimes be tweaked when we give it praise and approval, a little bit of glory is breaking out, and we are designed to experience that. But here, John says, here is somebody who can bear the weight of our desire to experience that. Because, of course, many things that we glorify disappoint, don't they? Or we over-glorify them and find them to be lacking. But here, John says, here is glory, glory as of the only Son of Father. And here is the characteristic of us. It is full of grace and truth. I mean, if you want to glory in something, glory in grace and truth. You want to point something out and say, that's good, that's desirable, that's attractive. Take a look at Jesus. I mean, if you really want to experience that thing we were meant to experience, take a look at Jesus. Because he's moved into the neighborhood. 
He is now here. And he is still here through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. So how's this for a thought experiment? What if Jesus did actually move into our neighborhood? What if Jesus did? What if grace and truth, and Jesus himself calls, adds that and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the life. What if he actually did move into our neighborhood? What if he was a frequent visitor in our home? And if I can use another biblical metaphor, what if we were married to Jesus? What if grace and truth was in our house? Now, you may know from experience or observation that um, marriage is difficult. I thought I was going to get more of a laugh on that one. <laughs> but some of you are sitting with your spouses, so you don't really want to go, oh, that's so true. I understand. Yeah, marriage is difficult. And you know, one of the reasons why is because there's no hiding, right? You can't really hide. Marriage exposes us. Even if you have just roommates, it exposes you. And that makes it hard. And just think then if we are married to someone who indeed was the most intelligent person we knew, as Jesus, as Dallas Word claims Jesus is. He's the most intelligent person. What if we were married to, what if we were married to someone who is eminently just? All wise, insightful, and perceptive. That, now that one's the problem. <laughs> They're perceptive. You know, if, they were, if it was just about the truth, and it's subset, kind of what is right to do, the commands, well, that would be hard being married to that person. Because <laughs> in most cases, they would be right. They would have the high moral ground. Don't we want that? And for those of us that are married, we want the high moral ground in the marriage. He or she would always have the high moral ground. And they'd mirror to us just the failures of our life by comparison. And in some cases, as we sometimes do when people expose us or when we are exposed by other people, even if that's not their intention, we want to avoid them. And we even come to resent them. In our passage today, John writes that the law was given through Moses. And that was literally the high moral ground. <laughs> he received the law on top of Mount Sinai. And he brought it down. And the law, of course, is some combination of the truth and the way, right? It's the way we ought to live. It is what is right. It is what is righteous. And so the law, John says in this passage, the law came through Moses. And, you know, the law is good. The law was, divine, was designed to be a vision of the good life. The law is a vision of the good life. Can you imagine a community, an economy, in which there was no greed, Right? No lying, thou shalt not lie. No stealing, thou shalt not steal. No exploitation, but honesty and generosity. No envy and coveting or cursing, but rather much kindness and forgiveness. And so on and so on. Faithfulness instead of infidelity. This is what the commands of Scripture paint. They paint this beautiful image of a community that is living righteously in which all of us grow righteous together. It's beautiful. The law, in that sense, is beautiful. 
I mean, even, even our own civic laws in a city, you know, they're meant to create an atmosphere of coordination and cooperation among ourselves and our neighbors, right? They're meant, the laws even of the city are meant to kind of help us live together rightly. I myself am particularly fond of the four-way stop. We have lots of these in our neighborhood, you know, the four-stop signs, you come together, right? They all stop, which again, sign of basic other awareness, Right, you get the occasional person who doesn't see the stop sign, they go right through, you go, that is a bad person. I like the four-way stop. The two cars come together in kind of, you know, perpendicular roads, and we know it's the, it's the car on the right that goes first. It's like, oh, yes, no, you, you go first, and they go through. And then if we come together, kind of together at the same time, now there's kind of a, okay, you go, you go. Oh, me? You want me to go? Oh, no, no, you go. I mean, thank you, thank you. Okay, we'll go, thank you. And I go through and you wave, thank you, thank you. I like that. It's kind, of, it's kind of this kindness and, and a kind of, you know, mild righteousness in the four-way stop when it works well. And it makes us surprisingly, you know, surprisingly appreciative of other people, you know, very simple. Now, if, if that car went and then another car snuck in right behind it, you know, and two go at the same time, it's like, that is a bad person. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. <laughs> now I'm really tapping into your anger. So. So, the, so laws are, are kind of a vision of the good life, however flawed human laws may be. The law given on Mount Sinai, the truth law, was a vision of the good life. And Jesus says, I have not come to erase the law. The law is still good as a picture. So the law is good uh, until, of course, it's applied to us. <laughs> until it exposes us. That's when it gets hard. In Romans chapter 7... Paul says, apart from the law, sin lives. <laughs> if you don't have a law, you don't know you're breaking it. Apart from the law, sin lives. You don't even know you're breaking it. But then Paul says in Romans 7, when the law came, and he was talking in particular about thou shalt not covet. When the law came, I died. <laughs> I discovered I was a lawbreaker. I was a transgressor. When the law came, I realized his sin. In our Isaiah passage today, the image of Israel's failures to keep the law are in the background of what is otherwise a glorious vision of their future righteousness. In our Isaiah passage today, the people of God are returning from a long exile in Babylonia to Jerusalem. They're, in this vision, they're being allowed to rebuild their city, which was sacked and from which they were hauled away many years earlier. And what's, what was once a glorious city, the home of the good law, is now in ruins. Walls are breached, wells are broken, and most painfully, the temple where God lived and in whose courts was the teaching of the Torah, or law, is completely looted and ransacked. The palace complex was a burned-out hole. And besides the loss of a place, Jerusalem in that time, what is arguably still today the world's most sacred neighborhood, the ruins of the city also reminded the Israelites of the ruins of their own lives as a community. Because in those ruins, they saw their own failures to follow the laws of God most notably, of course, the worshiping of the one true God. 
And so rebuilding Jerusalem would not just be a matter of brick and mortar. Rebuilding Jerusalem would have to be not just a transformation of a place, but a transformation of a people. Because the ruins mirrored to them their own need for rebuilding. And so the glorious vision of Isaiah here prophesies that God will be a God of love among the ruins. To quote a poem from Robert Browning. Love among the ruins. A grace that would redeem them as they rebuilt. He is a God of truth and grace. There's so many images of transformation and rebuilding to see in this passage, but I just want to look at one in verses 62, verses 3 and following. Isaiah says, You, people of Israel, will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. I had to look up what a diadem was, not being familiar with all jewelry. A diadem is kind of like a headband. He says, you will become a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of the God. No longer will they, the nations, call you deserted or name your land desolate. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. And now I'm reading from the ESV translation. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. I think in your translation says your sons will marry you. So will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So here we are back to marriage with God. The image here is one of beauty, the beauty of a redeemed people of God. Together they're kind of reflecting a crown of God, almost as if God took the city walls in the city and put them on his head. Something made for him and something that would be consonant with his own beauty and glory would be transformed. But the passage does quickly move on to the metaphor of marriage, where the prophet says, you will no longer be the deserted bride. You will no longer be the barren wife. And again, in one translation of what is a difficult Hebrew passage, it reads, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. Think about that for a minute. Your contractor will marry you, will love you. We had a remodel done several years ago. I wish our contractor loved us. That's another story. So this rebuilding of Jerusalem, this rebuilding of the good ways and the ways of life is more than just kind of a contractual relationship with the builder. You know, contractual relationships are where, you know, we give something and we get something back kind of in equal return, right? We give the contractor money and he gives us goods and services. It's a formal relationship. It's a tit-for-tat. It's based kind of on our performance, our ability to pay. This is not just about rebuilding a city. This is not about us being somehow resourceful enough to get God to come on our behalf. You know, that, that's, that's a misunderstanding of faith. The misunderstanding that, well, if I'm good enough, God, then maybe you'll bless me. You know, if I raise my children right, then maybe you'll make everything go well for them. If I run my business on ethical principles, then maybe you'll make it profitable. That's a contractual relationship with God. Lord, maybe if I'm good, maybe if I'm perfect, then you'll reward me. 
with all these things. No, that is life under God. As if he were just about truth or morality. Christianity is not primarily about morality. It includes morality. It includes it. And Christianity is not even primarily about the truth, although it absolutely is about the truth. When in Ephesians 2.1, as I may have said before, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He didn't say you were immoral, although we were. He didn't say we were wrong, although we were. He said you were dead. I want to bring you life. I want to bring you a relationship. Because a relationship with our God is the only thing that can make us beautiful. Beautiful enough for him to marry us. And he does the work. He's the builder. He does it. All we do is make space for him to work and to open our hearts to him. Our Galatians passage here says, you know, the law, as good as it was, can't change you. It can only, in the end, show you your shortcomings. In Galatians' passage here today, it says the law was a guardian or was sometimes translated tutor to lead you to Christ. The law was a tutor to say, here's a vision of the beautiful, and here's how you get there by a relationship with Jesus. The law was meant to take us further. Moses came by the law, John says. Jesus came with something better. Not that the law wasn't good but he came with grace and truth that had to be embodied in a person. You know, if Jesus came to marry me, you know, in some weird thought experiment here, I would have to say, you know, do you really know me? Because <laughs> you're going to get into this, and you're going to see some ruins. I mean, you would really, really, really have to love me. Because <laughs> you'd see it all. You would really, really have to love me because that love would have to overcome all that ruin that you would see. Do you really, really love me? Because that's the only way this is going to survive. You know, I've married a lot of people. Uh, officiated, that is to say. <laughs> and you know, that, that's the thing, you know. I said, marriage is a school of love. And, and I'm sitting there and the couple, they're so precious because they're in love. But you know what they're in love with? They're in love with the love that they have that day, which is a little. It's a little. And I say to them, you know what? You're not only committing today to the love of this person, but you're committing to grow in love because in the years that come, you're going to see some stuff. <laughs> and the love you have today will not be big enough to overcome it. You're going to have to grow in love. You're going to have to have a supernatural love that you've learned from Jesus to cover what you are about to see. Well, Jesus says to me, I understand. I have that love. I really, really love you. And love, as Paul says, such love can cover a multitude of sins. So Jesus comes not just to bring the truth, which is good, but to bring grace and truth, right? Because if we are loved but not known, we don't feel loved. And if we're known but not loved, we feel rejected. Jesus says, I know you and I love you, which is what we all want. 
And so we're told that not only Jesus, but Jesus stands for who God is. Paul says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. The one who has been at the Father's side has made God the Father known. The Greek word there is exegesato. It's one word. He has made him known. It's just one word in the Greek, exegesato. It is our English word for exegesis, exegesato. Jesus has exegeted the Father to us in the flesh. All of the grace and truth. So if you know what exegesis means, exegesis is in scholarly, especially biblical studies, is where you take a passage and kind of do a little bit what I'm doing here. You kind of break down the passage. You give the meaning. We normally understand exegesis in the context of biblical interpretation, to say the meaning of a text, to exegete it. The only place exegesato is used in the entire scriptures is here. And it's not Jesus interpreting a text. It's Jesus in his person showing us who God is, full of grace and truth. And so the light has come full of grace and truth. And all we have to do is cooperate with him in letting Christ be formed in us through a relationship with him. Paul says in 419 of Galatians in the same book that we have today, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, I am working so that Christ will be formed in you. And what does that remind you of? Well, that's Mary's calling, right? Mary's calling was to let Christ be formed in her. What does Paul say? I labor. The word for pregnancy labor. I labor, but now so Christ would be formed in you. As Christ was formed in Mary. So here we are at the beginning of the Christian year. And the invitation, the covenant is to let Christ be formed in you. And together we become, as a church, the city of God. Such as we are amid the ruins. But the good news is, there is love among the ruins. Amen?